All right, well, why don't you turn with me over to Luke chapter 19, and we're going to get down to about verse 28, uh, two major sections here. We have um, the scene where Zacchaeus meets the Lord and comes to salvation, and then we also have the parable of the talents of the minas, where they're given a, a, a monetary deposit from this nobleman. He goes away for some time and he expects that they'd be faithful, a picture of what the Lord has done with us. So those are the two main sections of scripture that we will be looking at. So let's go ahead and begin looking there at verse 1. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, uh, who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today... I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with the man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So probably if you grew up in the church, this is probably one of those uh, stories and the accounts of the life of Jesus that you remember quite well and, and the song that was associated with it. And, and, and here it is. It's, it's a Sunday school lesson, but it's a lesson of salvation. It's a lesson that hopefully all of us can go back to, maybe just go through the journey of where were you? What town were you in? Was it, probably wasn't Jericho, could have been Jericho, but probably wasn't Jericho. Where were you? What were you doing? What were you up to when the Lord came and he apprehended you? So in verses 1 through 10, Zacchaeus meets Jesus. And we have a picture of Jericho, the ancient Jericho, as well as modern Jericho, and um, the archaeologists will say that this is probably the longest inhabited city. I also have heard this of a couple of others, but this is one that at least is on the archaeologist's um, argument list for being the longest inhabited ancient city. Um, it sits 820 feet below sea level, so it's right there at the Dead Sea. And this is the place. It would be, um, of course, very low. Um, blind Bartimaeus, who we, who we talked about a couple of weeks ago, calling out for the Lord. For, uh, the, you know, for Jesus to heal him. Um, he was also sitting at this place. And when you go from Jericho um, and you, you ascend, you go up to, through the mountains, you go to Jerusalem. Um, it's on that road from Jerusalem down to Jericho that, um, of course, that man was, was beaten up by robbers and the Levite and the priest had no time. But it was what? It was the Samaritan who went and took care of this man. So a lot of things happened um, in in this area. But this is the place. And actually, I know it's probably hard to tell, but you got the kind of the green. You got a a, looks like a road. And then you have some another little mound. And those are the ancient ruins of Jericho. And um, quite fascinating study um, to to kind of read about that and all that they found when they uh, discovered this place. Um. So there at Jericho, you have Zacchaeus. It would have been a key place if you're a tax collector to be because a lot of things intersected there at Jericho. So there are different types of taxes that you could um, have to experience. There was the, you know, a poll tax. There was land taxes. Um, and then there was uh, customs on goods in transit. So this would have been a great place. If you wanted to be a tax collector, because there would have been a lot of goods that would have been in transit, and you would have been able to have made quite a killing. So the Romans wanted to generate money, uh, of course, for their empire and for just, you know, their government. They want money. And what they would do is they would, they would go into these places um, that they were occupying, and then they would find certain individuals 
that were of that country and would work for them. And they would, they basically, they would lease out the position as tax collector. And they would say, this is how much we want from the poll tax. This is how much we want on the goods and all the rest. You must give us that. Anything above that is your cut. So you can imagine the abuse and how it was never, and you know, uh, something that you was regulated. It's just whatever that guy wanted. And of course, they had the arm and the muscle of Rome behind him. So you have here a Jewish man. His name means righteous. And he have this righteous uh, man. I mean, can you imagine how that must have been just such a hard thing for them to even say, to refer to the, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who's ripping them off, and, and to call him the righteous. You know? So anyways, he, this is who he is. And they were despised because they were seen as working for the occupying force. And they were working. So like uh, Matthew... Um, a tax collector, Zacchaeus, also a tax collector, and we're not very well liked, as is seen even in the responses. Like, why would he go with this sinner? Um, but, but Jesus is willing to. And we see there in verses 3 and 4 that Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to know about more of him. Um, you know, the town, the country was abuzz with Jesus and all that he did, the miracles that he performed, his teaching. Um, and, and maybe even Zacchaeus had heard, hey, Jesus even meets, he even has a, a tax collector. I mean, what are the chances that Zacchaeus and Matthew knew each other? I'm thinking they're pretty high. I have no evidence for that other than they're in close proximity and this had to be Something that was talked about. You know what? There's even one of us that's following him. You're kidding me. A rabbi is willing to be around them. And so he is wanting to find out more. But he, but he has a problem. He's a short guy. And he can't see over the crowd. So he runs ahead and he climbs up into a tree as he anticipates the Lord passing by. So God was stirring in his heart. God was stirring in his life. Now we read this and it's just like it's, it's his desire. And, and, and that it is. It is his desire that has been ignited by God himself. There's none we read that seek after God. No, no one. Romans uh, 3.11 says there's no one who understands. There's none who seek after God. And so here's Zacchaeus seeking after God. So what's happening is God's working in his life. Apart from the moving of the Spirit of God... We, we, we won't come to him. Um, you didn't wake up one day and say, you know what, I think I'm going to be a spiritual man and woman now. I've always thought about these things, and, you know, it's always kind of, I've always had a bent towards spirituality, so I'm going to be a spiritual person, and I'm going to give my life to Jesus. It didn't happen that way. Now, you maybe from your perspective might have felt it going on that way, but there was an influence that was happening behind the scene. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. God is the initiator, and I believe that we must respond. Um, not referring to a, uh, a point, and I don't want to turn this into this conversation, but just for clarity's sake, I'm not talking about irresistible grace at one of the points of uh, the five points of Calvinism where somebody's going to get saved whether they like it or not. You can't resist it. No, I, I, God's pouring out his grace, and we're going to see that he's going to respond to this. Another verse, John 6, 44 says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So he's being drawn by the Lord. Or Matthew eleven twenty five through 27 reading from the New Living Translation. Then Jesus prayed this prayer, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding the truth from those who think themselves so wise and clever and revealing it to the childlike. Yes, Father, it pleased you to do it this way. My Father has given me authority over everything. No one really knows the Son except the Father, and no one really knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So we see the initiating factor of God in salvation. Um, one last verse, Philippians 1.29. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. 
So we see the role of God in redeeming mankind and moving upon our hearts. So again, think back to your circumstances, what was happening. And that, that, that desire to know the Lord and to know more of the Lord, that desire to, to, to be free of the sin and to quit you know, self-destructing your life, those were the workings and the movings of the Spirit of God in your life because He loves you. He loves you. And so he came and he touched your life and he's worked. And maybe you're here tonight. Maybe you're listening on the radio tonight. And, and you are a person who is feeling these stirrings. You're kind of like, yeah, I'm a little bit like Zacchaeus. I'm a, I'm, I'm a sinner. And I really would like to know more about Jesus. God is at work in your life. Again, it's not just because you have a, you know, this wise moment about you. You have this moment of sobriety and suddenly you see spiritual things. God is at work in your life. And that ought to amaze you. That ought to cause you just to stand back and say, who, me? Why me? I mean, this is kind of the response of Zacchaeus. Like, hey, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to your house. I mean, we, don't, we don't read it, but you can almost hear him saying, who, me? You, you, want, you want to come to my house? Yes, sir. Let's go. And, and this is what the Lord has done in your life. And so maybe you just need to be tonight as a saved person. You need to look back and you need to be reminded of the working and the moving of the Lord in this way. Or maybe you are one who is feeling that nudging and that drawing and that sense of, why do I just feel like I've got to, I've got to just learn more about the Lord? Because God is drawing you to himself. Don't resist that. Welcome that. Embrace that. So... Thank you, Lord, right, for coming after us, seen so clearly when he was born there in Bethlehem. And he came, and we're going to read it tonight, he came to seek and to save the lost. That's what he was about. He is the one who seeks after our people. In verses 5 through 7, Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house. And while he's there, I mean, Zacchaeus is immediately touched. Zacchaeus is immediately feels the conviction of the way he's been living his life. He knows it's wrong. But there in the presence of the Lord, he immediately begins to show the signs of his faith and his salvation. And he begins to um, repent. But when we seek after God... Um, I mean, this is, of course, what Zacchaeus was doing. When we seek after God, we can have this hope and expectation. God seeks after him. We respond to him. And it is this, this moving of God in our life and our response to him. But there's, a, there's this wonderful promise. Jeremiah 29, verses 11 through 13 says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and hope. How many of you have read that verse and love that verse? That is, that is one of the great verses of the, of the scriptures. And then it, verse 12 and 13 goes on though. It says, then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. That's good news, isn't it? And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And so as we come after the Lord, the Lord has given us this promise, hey, I will be found by you. He initiates, we respond, and when we respond, he says, I will be there. Jesus has even time for sinners, even sinners as bad as us, right? And he's willing to go to our house. I mean, it's an interesting scene here. Zacchaeus, um, he is short of stature. He can't see the Lord. Well, he can't see the Lord because he's short, but he also can't see the Lord spiritually because he's a sinner. And, and, you know, he wants to get a vantage point. He wants to climb up, so he climbs up a tree. But, you know, the Lord is going to go up on a tree for Zacchaeus and for me and for you. And had Jesus not gone up, there would be no salvation offered to anyone. So it's just this interesting little scene that's happening and is taking place. He says, I want to go to your house. I, wa I want to spend time with you. I want you to know who I am. Jesus loved to eat dinner with people. We see, have seen Jesus so many times having dinner at a Pharisee's house, at Simon the Pharisee's house, or going to Levi's house. He's going to these different people's homes. He goes to sinners' house. He sits and he eats with them. And this drives people crazy. The, you know, the uh, religious elite of the day look at this 
as he would go to a house like this, and it bothers him. But more than that, it's not just the religious elite this time, is it? It says, they all complained, saying, he has gone to be a guest with a man who was a sinner. Why? Because this sinner probably had had a negative impact upon their life. They probably had to deal with his crooked ways. They knew him. It's like, this guy? I can't believe that Jesus would go to his house. He ought to come to my house. And so Jesus wanted to go and be with him, which I think is a, he's, just, he's saying, I'll go to anybody's house. I'll go to anybody's house, and I'll have a meal with them, and I'll sit down with them, and I'll talk with them. If I have the chance to go and be with them, Jesus said, I will go. Now listen, Jesus didn't go to sit down and socialize with him. Jesus was on mission, wasn't he? He had a purpose. This wasn't just, I have nothing else to do with my Friday night, so I'm going to go hang out with some ungodly people. That's not that at all. This is Jesus on mission. This is Jesus looking and saying, this guy is responding. This guy is feeling Things in his life. This guy, my father is touching. And I'm going to go and spend some time with him. And, and praise the Lord for that. And so we too, man, to, to be on mission and to be, spend time with sinners is not a sinful thing to do. As long as you got the mission focus. As long as you are there to, to speak to them and to love them and to bring them to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Um, this is the model that we have. Now, listen, if you're doing this to, to fill in your social life and to find a pleasure of relationship, that's where you've got to be concerned. That's where the concern is. Because now you're trying to receive something from them rather than give something to them. But as long as you're on that mission of giving Christ and the gospel to people, you will find it a place that is, that is safe. But when you begin to have other reasons and motivations, that's the problem. And um, Jesus hears this complaint. And, um, you know, let's pick up in verse 8. It says, Then Zacchaeus stood and said, Lord, look, or uh, said to Lord, the Lord, look, Lord, I give half of my goods, and I'm going to give a, uh, you know, 25%. Um, if I've, I've taken something wrongfully from somebody. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. This is it. He also is a son of Abraham. And of course, he was a descendant of Abraham, but he did not have the faith of Abraham. But now he becomes not just a physical descendant of Abraham, but he actually becomes a spiritual descendant of Abraham, as do all people who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, whether you are Jew or Gentile. If you, as a Gentile, have put your faith and trust in Jesus, then you are a son and daughter of Abraham because you have that faith of Abraham. Now, he is both. He is both a physical descendant, but that in and of itself does not give you salvation. There must be faith in the Lord, the kind of faith that Abraham had. And Jesus says, this is why I came. I came to seek and to save the lost. Again, we just see the emphasis, Jesus is the one that's seeking. Jesus is the one that's saving, and he's saving the lost person. Something happened where Zacchaeus immediately began to feel that conviction in his life, and he repented. He turned away from this materialistic mindset, from this, this, this uh, harsh man that was willing to manipulate a situation for his own advantage and probably had people... You know, there probably were knees that were, you know, broken, right, by this guy. And call in the, the heavies to get what he wanted. And he's like, I'm done with that. I'm not going to do that. And the Lord immediately affirms, wow, salvation. Isn't this amazing? How long did it take for the Lord to affirm salvation? Well, that's great, Zacchaeus, but you know what? Why don't you go out and six months later, six months later come back and let's see how you're doing. We'll see if you're really saved. I mean, Jesus immediately affirms that faith of, of, that, you know, of, of Zacchaeus. Now, of course, the Lord knows the heart of all men. But I think we need to just see that the Lord is quick to, to, uh, to save. And he is quick to restore. Re the word repentance, it's an old-fashioned word, but it is still a necessary word for us to discuss. 
It means to turn the direction. You're walking this way, you repent. I'm no longer going to walk north, I'm going to walk south. I'm no longer going to go east, I'm going to go west. I'm no longer going to live for myself, I'm going to live for the Lord. It is a turning. It's, a, it's, a, it's completely going in the opposite direction. And that's what happens. He's no longer going to take. He's now going to give. It's such a perfect illustration of what repentance looks like. I took things away. Now I'm going to give them back. I've been you know, greedy. Now I'm going to be generous. And that's what repentance is. Um, turn with me over to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we're going to pick up reading somewhere around verse 9. Let me, let me get there and I'll look with you. Yeah, we'll pick up at verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the verse I want us to get to, verse 11. And such were some of you. This church was, was full of people that were in sin and had repented. It sounds like Calvary Chapel Lynchburg, doesn't it? And such were some of us. This is our background. This is what we've come out of. We've come out of life of sin. And, and so, but you were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. I realize it's popular in the day and age in which we live. And many will say, you don't have to deal with sin in your life. You can continue to live a sinful life. If you have that inclination, you have the desire. It's okay to live like that. Um, and it does not matter. But that's not what you find in Scripture. The Bible teaches repentance. The Bible teaches if you're a thief, you stop being a thief. If you're, you know, if you're ripping people off, you become generous. You know, if you're sexually immoral, immoral, you become sexually pure. You turn the way in which you're living. If you're a liar, you become a truth teller. Repentance. And, and that's what you see even in the church of Corinth. They had their problems, but even at the church of Corinth, we see this repentance. And Paul is so clear that, you know, people who live sinful lives and don't repent do not Inherit the kingdom of God. Well, that seems really narrow-minded. It's probably more narrow than you think, actually. And that's the way truth works, isn't it? You know, try, uh, try the, you know, when, the, when you get your bank statement and you see the truth of what you have, try just living like you have more. You're going to find out that that is a very narrow statement. What it says is exactly what you have. And this is the way the Lord is told. Now, but, but here's the sad thing. So often people see repentance as some dark, gloomy experience. There is nothing more joyful and exciting than repentance. This is what causes heaven to stop and throw parties. When a single sinner repents, the angels of heaven rejoice. It is not a sad thing. J Jason uh, made an allusion to the prodigal son returning and the father welcoming him and he throws a party. It's, it's, it's not just like, well, welcome back. Let's sit down and see where you really are. No, it's like my son was lost and now he is found. Kill the fatted calf, put a robe on him, put a, a ring on his finger. Let's have a party. And so this is not a sad, depressing thing. There's a brokenness, of course, that's, that's tied up in Repentance because you're acknowledging that, you know, you're a, a tax collector in, the, in the, the first century sense of it. And so if you're an IRS agent, we're not associating you with that, okay? But just this corrupt first century um, iteration of a tax collector, he's repenting. There's a brokenness. But, but you, you see, there's a, there's a joy there as well. And there's a joy when people repent. And you may feel like I'm, I'm too far away. 
Well, then what does this mean? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Second to last word of that verse is all. So what does that mean? That means there isn't any sin that you have committed or somebody else has committed that if you're willing to agree with God that it is sin, that it is an unrighteous thing, and to ask him to forgive you that he will, he, that he won't say no to. He will forgive every one of those sins. How about this? If, there's, if you've gone too far, then what does it mean in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 18 through 20? Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins were, are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though, so he's like, he's acknowledging that though is kind of indicating this is a bad condition. But then he goes on to talk about what he will do with that bad condition. If you're willing to come to him and if you're willing to reason with the Lord's, you know, wisdom and his truth. And the most reasonable thing you can do is come to Jesus and agree with God and allow his reason to transform you. And if you do that, then you shall be your red stained crimson life will become wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Are you willing? Are you willing to come to Jesus? Are you willing to confess? It is Confess means to agree with God about your sin. If you're willing to do that, and you're willing to repent, to turn, then there is salvation, there is cleansing, there is a forgiveness that, is, that, that, is, that he's willing to present to you. But don't believe anybody who tells you that it doesn't matter how you live your life. These are liars. These are deceivers. These are those that are trying to shipwreck people's faith and keep them from coming to the Lord. The Lord says, be holy for I am holy. And so he knows that we are sinners and he's made a provision and Jesus died on the cross for it. Which if we say you don't have to repent of sin, then it means that Jesus died for no reason. And then you've got to go back to that conversation that Jesus had with his father in the garden. He says, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. What's that? If there's any other way that people can be saved other than me having to die on the cross for their sins, then let's, let's, let's take that option. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And then Jesus went to the cross. And as Isaiah 53 says, the father poured out his wrath upon the son. The father found pleasure in the bruising that was happening to him because there was no other way for you and for me and for us and for this world to be saved other than Jesus to, to suffer and die on that cross. So if sin doesn't matter and you can live however you want to, then why did the father force his son to go to the cross and die a death that was not necessary? Christianity becomes meaningless if you don't have to repent of your sin. If you can live any way you want to, then you know what? Christianity is just a mess of a philosophy made up by a man. But that's not the case. The Lord shows the ugliness of sin by sending his son to this earth and dying on the cross, but also his deep love in that same act. In that same act, you see the, the, the anger of God against sin and you see the love of the Lord towards the sinner. Isn't that amazing? One single act. So Zacchaeus has a great day. And I know that as I look around this room, most of you have had that same great day. But if you have not had that great day and you have not experienced this salvation that the Lord says that he came for, Right, verse 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And if you haven't had that, then come to the Lord and reason with him. Now as we move into this next section, we, we come to this parable. A parable of faithfulness. What the Lord expects from guys like Zacchaeus now. Now Zacchaeus saved. What, is, what does God expect from Zacchaeus? What does he expect from you? What did he expect from Peter and John? What does he expect from the church for all that are followers of Jesus Christ? And that's what we're going to dive into here. But in this section, and, and you can just see it. Um, well, let me find it real quick. Okay, yeah, well, verse 11. 
And it says, we'll just read verse 11. Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So before we get into this teaching, I want to just kind of set the stage a little bit for the idea of the kingdom of God. I, I, I would be surprised, if you've ever thought about it, I would be surprised if anybody has uh, not had this thought as like, what, do we, what, the, what is the kingdom of God? I mean, sometimes it seems like the kingdom of God is this, and sometimes it seems like the kingdom of God is that, and sometimes it means this. What is the kingdom of God? And so I, I want to just share with you um, and just to be kind of so everybody can know the footing that we're standing on from a, um, and some of you will know this word, but from a dispensational point of view, Charles Ryrie presents these four different aspects of the kingdom of God. Uh, so the first aspect of the kingdom of God is the, he calls it the universal kingdom of God. And this is that God is a ruler over all. All time, all eternity, God is the kingdom, God is the ruler. And so 1 Chronicles 29, 11 captures this idea of the universal kingdom of God. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power and the glory, the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. So, I mean, just creation in general, the universal kingdom. That's, that's one aspect of the kingdom of God. Another one that's probably, and I think four, four out of these three are pretty easy to wrap your mind around. But the second one would be the, the Davidic or the Messianic kingdom. And so that's, again, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, this is going to be an easy one for you to wrap your mind around. But King David was promised that there would come from his uh, lineage one that would rule over Israel. And um, we know that that rule and that uh, kingdom will last for a thousand years and it will happen at the, uh, at the time of his second coming. And you can read the last chapters of the book of Revelation and you can, you can find this. But let me get, let's go to 2 Samuel um, chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. So your verses aren't going to be up there. It's too long to put it all up on that screen. So we're going to read it together. So head to the Old Testament. 2 Samuel chapter 7, 12 through 16 will be the biblical reference to this messianic or the Davidic kingdom. Messiah is the ruler. Messiah, Jesus, descended from David. And so either one of those names are, are interchangeable for this kingdom. And it is, by the way, this kingdom that they all expected for Jesus to establish. It is this kingdom that he's going to speak of um, as we, we move in to our, our passage here. But 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16, it says, When your days, so the, the, the word's coming to David, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed. Now, just coming out of Genesis, that word should just kind of light up with meaning for us, right? Uh, set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, um, if, he, if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and the blows of the sons of men. So, you know, we're talking about, you know, like Solomon and some of the others here. But my mercy shall not depart from him as they took it from Saul, whom I have removed from before you and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. So you have the, the messianic kingdom. Um, and Jesus, of course, is the one that descended from David. And he will one day set up that reign upon the earth in the nation of Israel for the nation of Israel. And he will rule over the nations. Many Old Testament passages are referencing this kingdom. And so... As you read through, you will, you'll see it so clearly. Then this one, I think, is kind of the one that's a you know, little more difficult to wrap our mind around. It's called the, the mystery kingdom. And I'm just going to quote to you from him, uh, from Charles Ryrie, what he says here. He says, in other words, it's the concept of a kingdom used to encompass the period between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. The ruler is God. The ruled are the people 
on the earth who have related themselves in a positive, neutral, or negative way to Christianity, Christendom, including true believers, professing people, um, rejectors, and even opponents. So we, we, there's this mystery kingdom that we would say we are a part of, right? We're, and so, but it's, it's not just um, Christians. That's going to be the next one. But this is, this is um, just the kingdom of God that has exi- that's established right now between the two advents. The fourth uh, kingdom that's referred to in Scripture is the spiritual kingdom. And this is the one to which, in which all believers that have put their faith and trust in Jesus are a part of. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. So there's a kingdom that exists right now, and this is entered into through the birth. And so in this spiritual kingdom, This is where the sovereignty and the rule of the Lord is acknowledged by people and they come to faith. And so we are part of this spiritual kingdom. So we find many references to kingdom and you got to kind of take a look at it and study it a little bit. Hopefully you can use that as a little bit of a roadmap as you as you go through. But let's go ahead and, and move into this passage now. Just read verse 11. And we see here that there was an expectation of the kingdom, that is, of the messianic kingdom, of the Davidic kingdom. They thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So obviously, as Jesus begins to speak, he's trying to let them know the messianic kingdom is going to be a while, boys. It's not going to appear immediately. And so he gives this instruction to them so that they can have a right understanding of how they should conduct themselves. Now, this comes up because he was near Jerusalem, still in verse 11. And it's in Jerusalem where they, I mean, they're expecting, we're going to Jerusalem, and he's going to establish the kingdom. He keeps telling them, that's not going to happen. I'm going to go there, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be crucified, and I will rise the third day. Ah, I don't think so, Lord. And so they're having a hard time accepting it. And he knows that these expectations are high in their mind. And what's going to happen here in a few short days as they watch him crucified, he wants them to get ready. So he's preparing them for what's going to happen. Um, And even after his death, burial, and resurrection... This is still in their minds, right? Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 7 says, Therefore, when they had come together, this is after Jesus had uh, uh, risen from the dead. He's about to ascend to heaven. It says, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at, t- at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons, which the Father has put in his own authority. So I just, for those of you that maybe would track this, Times and seasons, and you, you can do your own homework. Do, do a study on those words. Those seem to be um, specifically linked. They're like a technical reference to the kingdom of Israel. So you can go search that out and see if that's true. But anyways, this is on their minds before he goes to the cross, after he goes to the cross. And here in this parable, he wants them to have the right frame of mind concerning the kingdom. We need to be careful It doesn't just apply to this first century disciples that they could have a wrong expectation about the Lord. Anybody willing to raise their hand about that? Have you ever had a thought of what was going to happen? You had a belief. You you maybe even thought you heard from the Lord and you had full expectation what was going to take place. And then you had to deal with the reality that that didn't happen. It's a very unsettling place to be, isn't it? I mean, these are challenging things that we, we all go through. And so we need to have right expectations. Where do we find expectations? We find them in the Word of God. And we, we, you know, we, we've got we've to you know, be people of the Word so we don't get off course. Because wrong expectations can potentially be a faith crusher. And so we must... When we say God is going to, or I believe God is going to, we need to add, but he knows. But his will be done. 
you know. And so we must be careful. Now, when it's the word of God, then we can stand on it pretty firmly. Completely, you know, believe it and trust it. But even in that, that principle and the truth of the word of God is absolutely trustworthy. But we can then take it and we can make an application from that truth or that principle that doesn't exactly line up with what God is doing at that moment in our life. doesn't mean it's not true. It just means we're misapplying a principle from the word of God. And so I, I, I know that probably for some of you, this is bringing up some painful experiences, some painful memories, some, some disappointing moments that you had with the Lord. The Lord is always faithful. He is always faithful. He is always true. And he never tricks us. So whatever has happened there and that expectation, know that it was you or others that had the wrong expectation, not that the Lord deluded you or deceived you or failed to show up. And so we just have to raise our hands up. And I mean, I, I, can, I have those moments in my life where I really believe the Lord was doing something. I prayed and I sought the Lord and I fasted and I believed it and I did it. And it's like, Wah. that's not what's happening for sure. This is definitely not happening because this is not what I thought was going to take place. Well, let's move on. Verses 12 through 14. It says, Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country. He's a nobleman, far country's heaven. To receive for himself a kingdom and to return. Ah. So the kingdom that they're expecting, Jesus is going to go away, but he's going to return. So now they're getting a newsflash. I don't know if this is the first time, but it's among the earliest times we're getting the newsflash. There's going to be a second coming. There's going to be a second advent. So he called ten of his servants, delivered them ten minus, so the servants would be us, the disciples, followers of Jesus, Zacchaeus, me, you. And delivered them ten minus and said to them, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him. This would be the nation of Israel. And sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And so the nobleman appoints servants and is rejected by his citizens as a ruler of the kingdom. But to his servants he gives um, a minus, which is about 100 days wages. Okay, so that they're given a, 100 days wages. And we keep on reading. Verses 15 through 24, we're going to see the nobleman is going, now he's going to talk about the return. So it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom... He then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money. So he had given Christians a responsibility to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you are faithful and very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. Then another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, man collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? Why didn't you do at least the bare minimum with what I gave you? That at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten. So the faithful servants are rewarded. The wicked servant loses what had been given to him. The question is, was, you know, number 10 servant, um, was he a true servant of the Lord or just one who ran with the servants of the Lord? And you can find people, you know, lining up on either side. I think what is important, the lesson that we should glean from this, verses 25 and 26, is Jesus expects faithfulness from us. But they said to a master, he has 10 minus. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Jesus is serious about this. 
Jesus has gone away. He is, when the kingdom, when it's time to establish the kingdom and fulfill that 2 Samuel chapter 7 passage, he will return. But at that time, he's going to expect that his servants will give an account, not for what they've done with money, but what they have done with that which has been entrusted to them. What has been entrusted to them? Well, 1 Thessalonians 2.4. But as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the what? The gospel. Even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. God is going to test you and he's going to test me with what I have done with that thing that's been entrusted to me. And at the top of that list is the gospel. The gospel. The gospel works. The gospel produces fruit. The gospel brings a return, not for you, but for the one who laid down his life. When Jesus returns, he's expecting that which he has put and deposited into your life, salvation, the Holy Spirit, and even spiritual gifts, that there is going to be a return on what he has placed in Troy Warner's life and in your life. He's going to test our hearts. There's another place where this same point is made. Turn with me again to 1 Corinthians, but this time chapter 3, verses 5 through 15. Paul talks about this day that Jesus refers to in the parable when he will come and find out what his servants have done. This is not just a metaphor. This, is a, this, this day has a name. It's when we will stand before the Lord at the Bema seat, the judgment seat. Bema means judgment. We will stand, and as servants, we will be judged. Not our souls, but what we've done with what's been entrusted to us. The gospel certainly being first in line. So let's read this. Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? So we preach the gospel. Apollos preached. I preached. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. I mean, God's the one who saves people. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. Verse 10, according to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it. Because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's, anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. Look at this. But he himself will be saved yet as through fire. So this is not a question of a person's salvation. That's dealt with at the cross and when you put your faith and trust in him. But what is a future day that all of us have as is being communicated in this parable and how we should conduct ourselves while we're waiting for the kingdom to be established is we must be faithful. We will have a day. I'm going to have a day where I'm going to be eyeball to eyeball with Jesus and he's going to review my life. He's going to look at what he's put into my life. What has he put in my hands? And have I been faithful? Have I used it for his glory? And one of the things he's going to inquire about is the gospel. I've been entrusted with it. You have been entrusted with it. I will, will be entrusted as, as one who had a, a broad opportunity as a pastor to preach the gospel. And you're going to have that same meeting before the Lord. And you know how broad, and of course the Lord knows for sure, how broad of an opportunity. Thinking, well, my opportunity is not as broad as Billy Graham is not going to be a good excuse. 
Lord, I would have if you would have given me like the opportunity Billy Graham would have had. Then I would have taken this seriously. But I probably only had a chance to share with a handful of people. I don't think you're going to say that. I don't think any of us are going to say that. So we must be wise. The one servant did nothing with that which was entrusted to him because of fear. Now, I just have to say, I mean, I do believe that fear is something that holds us back from stepping out because we're afraid of failing. We're afraid of how people are going to respond. We're afraid of the the lack of our giftedness. But I I just, I don't know. This, This excuse does not strike me as reasonable because he's questioning the character of the one who had given him the gift. I, okay, I get fear on the level of me. I understand fear that you deal with on the level of you. We all understand that. But fear because Jesus is a terrible master? Mm. But Jesus uses his words. He says, well, out of your own mouth then, I'll judge you. You should have taken care of business. You know, we need to make certain that we understand we've been given the gospel. It's changed our life. We are to be a mouthpiece of the Lord. We are to be ambassadors through whom the Lord pleads. And he has given us his Holy Spirit to do the work. This is what he said to the church. I'm going to send you out. You'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. But make certain you are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not asking you to do it on your own. I'm saying do it with the power that I give to you. This is what happened when he commissioned his disciples that they should go. Are you ready to stand before the Lord? Now listen, let's go back to the faithful ones. They were given, uh, in one instance, you know, one mina, and they were given ten in return. Or actually, actually made ten, and then they were given, you, you go out of this kind of like, you know, wage thing, and all of a sudden you're given ten cities? That's not fair. That, that's way too much in return for what? Has been done. So this is what I want us to walk away with as, as we begin to wrap this up. The beam of seat of Christ is something that should cause us all to be sober. It should all, cause us all to step back and to evaluate. And listen, I, this is something that shocks me. I have heard people say, you know, there's no moment where we're going to stand before the Lord and give an account for the way we live. That's just a scare tactic. You don't know your Bible. I'm sorry. Read your Bible. We are going to give an account. And, and certainly it causes us to have a sobriety. But I don't want you to walk out of here just condemned and, you know, your sword kind of dragging on the ground behind you as you walk out. I want you to see the grace of God at the Bema seat. So you took one, you turned it into five, and, 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 and now you get five cities. How does that even begin to compare? The reward is so outrageous compared to what the servant has done. Which means God is gracious even at the Bema seat. Can I get an amen for that? I'm looking forward to that grace at the Bema seat. I'm glad for the grace that that has brought me salvation. But I'm also looking for the grace that will be present at the Bema seat. What do you mean? I I think this is what it means. There's going to be things that in relationships you've had where maybe at this moment you'll look back on like, oh, man, I was a terrible witness. I failed. I was belligerent. I was unkind. I was, it was sinful. I, 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 I was silent and I did nothing. And I think we're going to get up there. We're going to see that the Lord took even the smallest bit of faithfulness. And for his glory and for his honor, he blew it up into something amazing. And we're going to stand back and we're going to say, wow. I had a, a moment. Um, I don't think that, I, I just, I think it, it touches what I'm trying to talk about. A good friend in high school and um, I was a witness to him, led him to the Lord. But I also was not a, a good example always of a Christian. And so, but you know, he, he, he came to faith. And um, um, so years went on. We moved out to California, living in different places, and I was a missionary on the mission field. And one day I got a phone call on the mission field from this guy. And he just said, hey, Troy. I'm like, what are you doing, Call? How would you even get my number? Um, and, and he said, I just wanted to call and say thank you for leading me to Christ. I'm like, oh, man. I said, I was a terrible witness. He goes, well, you had your struggles, but I knew 
that what you were telling me was true, and I knew you believed it with your heart. And you know what? I'm married to a Christian woman, and we're raising our family. It just was, I look at that, I'm like, I could have done so much better. But even there, the grace of God was at work. And so, be sobered. You know, allow this to strike you, but don't let it get to the place where you just, like, get swallowed up in discouragement because God's grace is still at work. What is it going to be like when we get before the Lord and we begin to see all that has happened because you taught faithfully in Sunday school, because you were a witness in the midst of that trial at work? I think we're going to see for the namesake of Jesus and for the reward of his suffering, God blew those things up with his power and his grace. Don't you think so? So, yeah, some are going to come in and they're, I mean, they're going to be smoking when they come in, right? They might have some, you know, burn holes on their garments. It says they're in Corinthians. They're going to be all right, but they're just going to have nothing to offer to the Lord. I, I think, you know, who, who is that? That's something that maybe gets saved at the very last moment. They have nothing to offer to the king for what they did with their life. They lived their whole life for themselves. At the last moment, they came in. Or, or they, they genuinely were saved. But, man, just like you, you wonder. You wonder. It's like, are they really saved? They say they are. They get mad if you say that they're not. But you look at their life and you wonder. I think there's going to be a lot of them. They're just kind of sliding under the gate as it's closing in heaven. And they come in and there's just like a little puff of smoke. It's like, oh, thing, you know, you have nothing to offer the Lord. They'll still be glad to be there. Still, still heaven, but there's something to this. And, you know, Jesus, how many times does he talk about, how I'm coming quickly, and what is with me? What does he say? My reward is with me. So if you're one of those, they're like, yeah, I don't know if we should be all into these rewards. Well, look, Jesus is excited about the reward he's going to give you. So if you're not excited about it, quit trying to act spiritual and get excited about the rewards that the Lord is excited to give you. Don't be like that person who's given a gift and say, I really don't want your gift. That's called rude. So the Lord is super excited to come back and give you a reward for your faithful service. What else are we going to live for? You know, 10,000 years into eternity, do you think you're going to regret that you spoke up and you preached the gospel and people didn't want to hear you, but maybe one did? You're not going to regret the, 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 you know, the anger or the fury that came your way because you were preaching the gospel. You're going to be grateful that you opened your mouth and spoke. So, um, yeah, Jesus is just laying it down so clearly. Expectation. Um, you know, if you look at Zacchaeus, expectation, you repent, you change. Um, expectation here is that you're going to be faithful. So we close at verses 27 and 28. But bring... Those enemies of mine, those that said, you will not rule over us. When Jesus returns, he's going to see those that do not, said, don't rule over me. And will slay them before me. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Because they were going from below sea level up into the mountains of Judea. So we have the opportunity to live for Christ. He's given us the heads up. He's gone, but he's coming back. And when he comes back... He's going to look at everything that's been entrusted with you, the gospel, your spiritual gifts, your talents, and he's going to look and review your life of how you have lived. Don't live for yourself. Don't live for right now because this is all going to fade away. This is all going to pass away. Am I the only one? And I'm not living in fear, just so you want to, but has anybody else just like had these thoughts with everything? It's like, man... This whole world could go crumbling and whatever I think I've saved and whatever home I think I have and whatever belongings I think I have, it could all go away. Has anybody else had that thought? No, don't dwell on it and get in fear, but that's a good, it's a good thought to have to sober us up. Because whatever you do for the Lord, it's going to remain forever. Forever. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness that you would call us, that you would even give us uh, a mina, a half a mina, a quarter of a mina, that we'd even have even a day's wages, Lord, that you would place into us and that you would uh, give us the opportunity to bring glory to your name. We want to do that. 
We want to do that as individuals. We want to do that as families. Lord, we want to do that as, as a church. Lord, we want your, your name to be great. We want, Lord, to preach your gospel in our cities. Lord, we want to preach the gospel in our neighborhoods. And Lord, if we have been fearful, if we have been preoccupied, Lord, forgive us. You deserve to come back to a great reward for all that you've done for us.